Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. Today, we are going over the Ronde von Vlaanderen, the Tour of Flanders, the race that just wrapped, wrapped up, the second monument of the year. Matthew Vanderpool won in a thrilling sprint over Dylan van Barl and Valentin Matuis. Um, Tadej Pogacar came in fourth. If you watch the race, Tadej Pogacar should have come in minimum second. Screwed the whole thing up, finishing fourth. It was a really crazy finish, really wild stuff. And I'll try to break it down here pretty quickly. And if you want a deeper dive, the newsletter is coming out today as well. So you can find that at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition and a paid edition. The Flanders breakdown will be included in the free one. So you just have to go there. You can read it on the website. You can subscribe to the newsletter so it comes straight to your inbox however you want to do it let's talk about matthew vanderpool he wins the tour of flanders really 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 amazing victory this means he's now won two um amazingly the most that anyone has ever won is three so he's only one win away from that and if you remember last year he got second to casper Askren in exactly the same fashion that that he won today he lost last year he waited too long on Askren's wheel Askren sprinted early and beat him so if not for that he would have he would have three wins out of the last three years, which is hugely, hugely, hugely impressive from a rider that I've been pretty critical of. And he's 27 years old. This is a second monument win. Um, it sounds crazy. I think that's a little bit low, honestly, compared to other riders like Tom Boone and Fampi Kechelar, but they are both Tour Flanders wins. And if he keeps this up, I mean, a first, second, and first in the last three years is hugely impressive. I almost can't overstate how good that is. And Wout Van Aert, I think is before this race, I would have said is the probably the best one day rider in the world coming out of this weekend. I mean, to no fault of Wout's own, he got COVID, he couldn't compete. Um, I, I'd say I'd, I'd probably have to say that Matthew Vanderpool is the premier cobbled rider at the moment. I mean, he is he's he hasn't finished lower than second at the Tour of Flanders in the last three years. That's really impressive. And Perry Roubaix has been a, a weird event during that time. It, it has only happened once in the last three seasons. It, it will happen again in, in two weeks' time. And he finished third in that. I mean, that's really impressive. It's, it's, it's hard to almost put into context, context. And the thing that really stuck out to me today is just how cool and calm and collected he looked and how smart he rode. I mean, normally, he's like the knucklehead. He, he's going way too hard, way too early, um, riding hard when he doesn't need to be hard, attacking needlessly. Um, I, I didn't recognize that rider today at all. If anything, Tadej Pogacar assumed that role and, and Matthew Vanderpool was just there responding, like um, just kind of beautifully responding to everything Pogacar threw at him. thing we'll all remember from this race is, is the final kilometer, them coming under, under the Flan Rouge together. Pogacar basically saying, I'm, I'm not going to hit the front until I open my sprint. So you're welcome to sit here in freewheel and let the chasers bear down on us, Van Barl and Matuis, to catch us and pass us. I'm not doing anything. Vanderpool just sat there calmly and really called his bluff. I was so impressed by this. He was in complete control of that sprint. He never really seemed to waver in that final kilometer. You know, he was in there. They were both in a tough position because you can't open your sprint. If you open your sprint from 500 meters out and you're both going that slow, you're not going to win. It's going to be so easy to get on your wheel. So the pickle they were in is. The first one to go was probably going to lose unless they could just push it, push it as far as possible. You really don't want to go before 250 meters out. And that's still a little bit too far, if you ask me. But Vanderpool just sat there and, and was just monitoring the, the two riders closing in on him. And when you watch him go, he opened this like little fake sprint to try to get Pogacar to come around him. Pogacar 
probably tries to come around him, but the gap from the fake sprint was so big that Vanderpool just looked back and thought, ooh, wow, that, that's a nice gap. I'll just keep going and then push it all the way to the line. It, it looked, you know, at the time like, oh, wow, Matuis and, and Van Baal could pass him and, and win the race. In reality, Vanderpool probably knew those guys are so tired from the hard chase that they'd been doing that they're not going to pass us. Once I, if I open my sprint and we have a two or three meter gap, I'm going to be safe. They're not moving fast enough. They do not have the energy to, to pass me. So, you know, I felt like he had control of that final kilometer in a way that I've not seen him race ever in his career. You know, normally we'd see him just, just try to pull everyone to the line and out sprint him. And it, and it works a lot of the times. But, you know, I saw at Dwarves de Vlandrin on Wednesday, he was riding really conservatively for him. And just kind of waited and attacked the last minute and won the race because of it. And I don't know if it's because he feels out of shape or he is out of shape because his brain was so disrupted by the back injury and he he really didn't have a good build up to this race. I mean, he didn't his first race came 15 days before this. So um really not what you'd want to do. I, I'm not sure that's ever happened actually, that someone's been able to win Flanders with that little preparation, at least racing preparation. So it's possible that he's just not on top form. And if he's doing this not on top form, um, it's going to be a long few classic seasons for anyone that isn't him because he looked really unshakable today. I'll go back through a few points earlier in the race. I don't want to be too redundant with the newsletter, but um, there's a few key points here I want to go over. But I've never seen him race like this. And if he can keep this up, he will be um, winning monuments for the next few years, at least. This was very impressive. Um, if we go back to, it, it was a really wild race. I, I don't re- ever recall seeing a Flanders like this. And if you remember, this is what I said about Milano San Remo. I, I don't ever receive, remember seeing a Milano San Remo that was this hard, that the moves came that early and that the race was so thinned down when it came into the finish. Same thing here. I mean, with 90K to go, even with like 99K to go, Jumbo's attacking, um, Nathan Van Hoydendick from Jumbo. It doesn't really come to anything, but eventually, a few kilometers later, a chase, like a really strong chase group, and I call it chase group because it's behind the breakaway, but it's really like the lead group of the peloton is out in front and has Mads Pedersen in it, some really strong riders. Um, key, the key thing is it had riders from like all the strong teams, except for UAE, um, Total Energies, and Opposite Phoenix. And I believe Dakota Quickstep had a rider in there, but they were chasing anyway. We'll get into that in a second. But that really put pressure on the Peloton. And it was like pedal to the metal from 90K basically to the finish. I mean, this, I feel like this race finished very early. It was just the kilometers were ticking by. So specifically with UAE and Alpes and Phoenix not in that lead group, there was a lot, a lot of pressure on their teams to pull that back. The gap got out to about a minute. I mean, at one point I thought, I'm just thinking, is this, is this coming back? Is Pedersen just going to ride to the win? Um, as soon as we got to the second passing of the Oak Barmont, the second of three, it was clear that that was not going to happen. The the group was like right out in front, like 11 seconds out in front. Tade Pogacar is kind of out of position because his UAE team had burned all their matches, pulling him back up to that group. And I I wonder if my my theory here is Matteo Trenton does a big turn to get him into you know a decent position for the Oakwaremont and to get that gap as small as possible. That was pretty much his last teammate, and he's thinking, well. If I don't have any teammates left for that last 55 kilometers, which is a really tough, really critical part of the Tour of Flanders, 
um, I'm a sitting duck. You know, it's really hard to be teammate less at that point in the race. You know, in a normal year, you probably wouldn't stand a chance because of that. It'd just be so difficult to weather attacks from teams with, with multiple riders. So he just goes up the Claremont faster than I've ever seen anyone go up it. I mean, he was just blowing by guys like they were on a club ride and he was a professional um, just trying to get around them. It was really impressive. Like he basically nukes the race right here because even though some guys can pass him, and then critically Vanderpool is not on his wheel. Vanderpool misses this move. Casper um, Askren's right on his wheel. Mads Pedersen is right behind him. I I think that they were so gassed from from following him up the steepest pitches of the Claremont that they basically ruined their races right there. They, they were never the same riders after this. Um, they get to a. Like they crest the top of the climb. There's a slightly like it's like a slight downhill and then like a gradual never ending gradient for what seems like two to two more kilometers. Vanderpool realizes right here that like this is the race. I have to bridge right now or I will not see them again. And he does it. He invests this energy to bridge up to them. The way that he bridged it and then the way he rides on the Paderberg a few kilometers later tells me that he was probably this was probably not a fitness thing that he was just out of position. Um, and a key thing we can see Tom Pitcock is like staring at him as he goes and can't follow him. So right there, I'm thinking, well, Pitcock is not going to be able to respond when things get really, really tough later in this race. They get to the Paderberg. Uh, Bahrain kind of blitzes the Paderberg. Jan Trenkic from Bahrain goes up it so fast. Um, I, I didn't see this coming, but Bahrain really was able to get in a great position here because once they get over the Paderberg, there's no quick step riders left. There's two riders from Bahrain and three riders from Ineos, and then Vanderpool and Pogacar are isolated. So this is potentially a pretty precarious, situa precarious situation. And then Ineos and Bahrain um, do their job and get a rider up off the front. Dylan Van Bambarl and Fred Wright from those teams get off the front, which you know you want to do if you have numbers in a breakaway. Um, in theory, it puts pressure on Vanderpool and Pogacar, but as soon as we get to the Koppenberg, we see that doesn't really put any pressure on them. Pogacar and Vanderpool went up the Koppenberg so fast. And the Koppenberg's supposed to be like a positioning climb. Um, it's supposed to not really decide the race, but if you're out of position on it, maybe you, you won't be able to get back on. It's really like an hors d'oeuvre, like a table setting. And to me, this is what this was the end of the race. Um, Vanderpool and Pogacar go up it so fast. Um, only Valentine Mattis can really stay with them. Mads Pedersen is like two or three bike links off of valentine and he can't close the gap and we never see any of those guys again who weren't in that first three position and something i noticed from this climb is everyone's riding in the gutter except for bagachar he's just riding right in the middle of the cobblestones which is like the slowest place to ride so it just shows you how strong he was feeling on the day that even vanderpool's in the gutter looking for the smoothest possible service and bagachar is just i'll just go over these rough cobblestones um that was really kind of bizarre and, and impressive at the same time and then once those three get over the, the Koppenberg, it means that only Dylan Van Barl and Fred Wright are in front of them. Um, eventually, they all come back together. And then once they come back together, um, there's technically five people. But what we all know is going to happen is Pogacar and Vanderpool are going to go into the final two climbs of the Oquermon and the Paderberg. And P Pogacar is going to try to drop Vanderpool. If he can't drop Vanderpool, um, he's in a real tough spot because it means he has to outsprint him because it's like a 13 kilometers flat to the finish. Um, he tries, he can't drop him. He gets rid of Wright and Matuis and Van Barl, but he really, he's not really ever threatening to drop Vanderpool. Um, Vanderpool looks a little roughed up, uh, especially when they get to the Paderberg. He, there's like a bike, bike length gap, but nothing ever comes of it. Pogacar can't wedge that open anymore. 
Um, something I, I thought was really strange is Pogacar was working with Vanderpool in between the Paderberg and the Quermont, which which is really strange because he should be trying to sit on, conserve energy to drop Vanderpool on the Paderberg. You, why why would he work? You'd really only work if you wanted to keep dropped riders off the back. But what does Pogacar care about keeping those riders off the back that he knows he can probably drop in the Paderberg anyway? So he'd be better off just sitting on. Vanderpool's wheel and then forcing Vanderpool to make the decision to ride and keep those riders off the back. Or um, the, the problem is once they catch on, it's like just more chance for chaos. Like the, the more riders there are on a group, the the harder it is to control the variables. So someone like Vanderpool who just wants to get to the sprint and win the sprint doesn't really want to deal with those guys. So maybe he would work to keep them off the back. Maybe not. But what does Pogacar care? Like that's what I didn't understand about his tactics here. And once he he sees he can't drop Vanderpool going over the Paderberg, uh, he looks like he sits up. And I thought he was going to sit up and let the chasers catch them, and then they were all going to like, you know, duke it out on the way to the finish line. That would give him cover basically to launch some type of move, put Vanderpool in a tough position. The more riders there are with them, it means that Vanderpool have to has to make hard positions if Pogacar attacks. If if they're together, if it's the two of them and Pogacar attacks, it's not a hard decision. Vanderpool is just going to reel you in because if he doesn't, you win. But if there's three, four riders on his wheel, is he going to pull them back up to Pogacar? Who knows? Maybe he wants them to work. Maybe he tries to call their bluff, but they're not bluffing and they really can't pull him back and Pogacar stays away for the win. So just, just going by that logic, Pogacar should want as many people in this group as possible. The only reason he wouldn't want that is if he really wants the second place. You know, I, I've been in positions like this where, you know, maybe I, can, I don't know if I can win the sprint, but second's pretty good. So I'll just work with this guy and get second. Um, that, that didn't even happen, though. That's what's crazy here. And what does Pogacar care about second place at the Tour of Flanders? The guy's won the Tour de France two times. He should be trying to win this race. And he, he was good enough to win this. So I was shocked that he was working with Vanderpool all the way to the finish line. I really couldn't believe that. And they really weren't even close to getting caught until they get to the final kilometer and he stops working. And then Vanderpool calls his bluff and free, free wheels. And then what he should have done here is the first rider to go usually wins in these situations. If you can get close enough to the line, you know, if he jumps with 300 meters to go, maybe he loses, maybe Vanderpool catches him, but maybe not. You know, Vanderpool's not a great long, long sprinter. He's like a great has a great 10 second burst. He can burn you off, but Pogacar is a fit, fit, fit rider. I think over, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 seconds, maybe he can beat Vanderpool, but he really doesn't. If you let that sprint get close enough, 250, 200 meters, you're not going to beat a rider as big and as explosive as Vanderpool when you're a Tour de France contender. It's just not going to happen. So everything about that final kilometer was so weird. And even the decisions leading up to it, if he wanted to win, he really wanted, he should have wanted those chasers to come back on to rake, make the race as complicated as possible and to just try to put Vanderpool in a vice, just try to attack and say, hey, if you want to win, you got to pull these guys back up to me. If you don't want to do that, I might ride away for the win. I don't know if he wasn't getting information from the team car. I'm, I'm not sure what happened inside that team, but it, it definitely was a bit of a meltdown. Other quick notes from the race is a um, huge result for Dylan Van Barl. And Ineos looked good. Um, they, they kind of crapped the bed a little bit with Pitcock falling out of position and their numerical advantage going from like highly favorable to, to nothing and Ben Barrel being by himself. But second place is really good. I, I, second place is great. Unless you're Matthew Vanderpool, Tadej Pogacar, or well, Van Art, it's going to be hard to win these races. So you want to pick up as many podiums as you can. And now he's, he's second at world championships last year. He's second here. 
you know, who knows? You keep putting yourself in those positions and you might win a big one. Um, I, I was really impressed by by Ineos's ability to get those numbers and for Van Parle's ability to to reel those two in and then not win the sprint, but win the sprint against his 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 pacemaking companion. You know, and, and if things fall a different way, I think Van Barro's the best rider in the world at just like maybe not being the most talented, but just putting himself in positions for things to happen. Like, you know, what if Vanderpool screwed that up? He he could have won this race. He he had a real shot. Um, and what it what's so impressive is he wasn't one of the strongest riders in the race. The only reason he was up there is because he attacked before the Koppenberg. This is the key. But a race like Flanders, the climbs are so selective and they're ridden so fast. If you're not one of the elite, elite riders, if you're not Taddy Pogacar, think how good Mads Pedersen is and he was distanced on the Koppenberg. You need to find ways to pull out time and distance elsewhere. That's the flats or the downhills. And Van Barrow only got second at this race because he pulled out time before the Koppenberg on the flats when he could, when no one else was going to pull him, you know, when everyone else was, was going easier and it gave him that cushion, he probably would have gotten dropped in the Koppenberg if he would have waited. So, so just super, super impressive performance from both of those, um, the second and third place finish. And it shows that getting out in the front of the, in front of the race is, is really key. And that's kind of brings me to the last point I'll talk about is second to last point is Jumbo Visma, I thought, just really wilting in this moment. I mean, they've been so good. If you think of the run of races, um, obviously Van Aert's good, um, even, but even if we separate him, um, think of, think of Perry Nice. Think how good Christophe Laporte was at the end of that stage one. Think how good Christophe Laporte was at Gimp Mubblegim. How good Tej Benut was E3 and Doors. I, I didn't recognize those guys today. I, I don't know if, if they just mismanaged their run-up. Maybe they were too good too early, but as I said, you can make you can make differences on the flats, you know, and Ineos did everything Yumbo didn't. I thought Ineos raced a great race knowing that they probably couldn't go pedal for pedal stroke for pedal stroke on the climbs. Um, Yumbo seemed to not realize that and tried to do it. They had two riders at the base of the Koppenberg. Normally that's not anything to write home about today. That was huge. And they just both got dropped in the Koppenberg, which wasn't totally unpredictable. I mean, Laporte crashed, so you want to give him a little bit of a break. But, you know, even then, he, Laporte was pretty good. He finished ninth. So I, I think there was room there for them to, to try to get a little bit more creative with, with what they did. Um, Benute even looked good when he, I thought he could close. He was so close to catching the chase group after the Haute-Quermont, and then he just completely fell apart. So if, if he can make that juncture, they have him basically riding for third place on the road um, in the group that eventually catches the leaders. And then they have Laporte back in the bigger group. So still a pretty good position. And it just all falls apart. It all fell apart basically in the sh- like the two kilometers between the Oakware Moat and the Paderberg. Um, I, just, I just thought Yumbo left a lot to be desired today. For, for a team that's been as good as they've been and you know, wanting to be the dominant classics team and being very vocal about that being, you know, I'd say showing a little bit of hubris after today. I think that was a lot of humble pie they had to eat. Um, I wasn't super impressed with their creativity, especially with Van Art gone. It almost looked like they rode the race as if Van Art was in it, but he just wasn't there. Like they set the race up for Van Art and he was not at the race. They didn't adapt well. Um, kind of thought experiment. If Van Art is here, you could say that it could have worked out better, but how does he win this race? Could he have dropped Vanderpool? I don't think so. Could he have out-sprinted him? I don't know. I mean, maybe. He hasn't had a great sprint this year, though. I don't think he's won a single sprint, except against Christophe Laporte, who let him win. 
I think even if Vanderpool's here or Van Art's here, Vanderpool still wins. Uh, and then the last thing is quick step. Oh my. Um, this is the worst classic season they've had since the team started in 2003. Um, and they're in a, a deep identity crisis. You could see them like setting the race up, racing as though they're setting it up for someone who can win. And then they don't have anyone who can win. Um, Casper Askren in theory, but even before he dropped his chain at the top of the Koppenberg, he wasn't impressing me before that. He, he looked he looked off his best. And I know they've been sick, but everyone had, everyone's been sick this year. They were just so bad. So bad. I mean, their, their top place rider was Casper Askren in 23rd, and he dropped his chain and basically had to get off. He got, he not basically, he had to get off his bike and was at a standstill at the top of the hardest point of the race. I think that they've been not replenishing the stock of young classics riders, especially cobbled riders of that team for years. They've been getting pretty cheap in the transfer market. And it definitely shows. Um, you just you run the same group back so many years and you get caught out doing it. Um, it's really shocking to see they've fallen off a cliff. But if we go back through years past, it, it's probably the evidence, like the the hints are there that they just have not been rebuilding, you know, keeping the house up every year, doing the maintenance work needed to keep that dominance going. Because in the years past, I mean They've been. They've won these days. They would have won a race like this because they would have had three riders when everyone else is isolated, and they can send a rider off the front. And as the hard decisions I talked about earlier, I mean, are you going to chase that guy down when he has two teammates behind you? Probably not. So, you know, their whole shtick is is winning in numbers, and they don't have numbers at the moment. Casper Askren's pretty good. You know, I very good, I guess I would say. Not not super disappointing, but. The way they race, they, they need a lot of good riders, and they don't have those at the moment. All right, well, check out the newsletter for a little bit more in-depth breakdown. If you're interested, I just wanted to go over the main talking points here. I will be gone out of, out of town after Amstel, but I have a banked podcast interview that will go up next week. So I will be back live at the end of Paris Bay in two weeks. All right, have a great week and enjoy the racing. Bye.